You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the new Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Thanks for joining us for the 11th and final episode in our record-setting series on the life of Antarctic explorer Ernest Shackleton. Before we get going, I just want to say thanks to everyone who had a hand in the making of this series. I had people not just recommend books about Shackleton, but they sent me them as well. I had so many people offer advice and encouragement, it was really cool. The show's Patreon followers were especially helpful, so thank you to all of you. I do want to give a shout-out to Joe, a big Shackleton fan, who spent a couple of hours on the phone with me in the early planning stages of this series, talking about all things Shackleton. It was a tremendous help. And I want to give another nod to Amy, who sent me dozens of photos of the Antarctic huts used by Shackleton and Scott. You can see those photos on the website, explorerspodcast.com. I put a link to the page in the show notes as well. So again, thank you. It was really sort of overwhelming how many people wanted to help out. And that's a wonderful feeling. And with that said, on with the show. Today's episode is going to cover five things. This includes the following. 1. Shackleton's life post-endurance, including his contributions to the war effort. 2. Shackleton's final exploration endeavor, the Shackleton Rowett Expedition, also known as the Quest Expedition. 3. We will do a brief rundown of some of the key people from Shackleton's life, including men such as Frank Wilde. 4. We will do a wrap-up of Shackleton's life and talk about how perceptions about men like Shackleton and Robert Falcon Scott have shifted over the past hundred years. And finally, we will talk about the enormous legacy of Ernest Shackleton. That's a lot to cover today, so let's get going. In the spring of 1917, Ernest Shackleton's endurance expedition was over. Everyone was heading home, save for the three men of the Ross Sea Party, who had died the previous year. Shackleton was forced to face his critics, who noted, rightfully so, that many of the expedition's most serious problems had been the result of his mismanagement. He had cut funding to the Ross Sea Party, his orders and communications to that same team had been lacking, and he had allowed endurance to be trapped in the ice of the Weddell Sea, despite multiple warnings it was going to be a harsh season. To top it all off, Shackleton was deeply in debt. The rescue operations had cost upwards of £20,000, a tab the governments of Australia and New Zealand would be forced to absorb. Leonard Tripp, who had been left to try and sort out the wreckage of the financial affairs of the endurance expedition, wrote Shackleton about the situation, saying, quote, it seems to me that it will be impossible for you to do any exploring for many years. It would be unwise for you to ever take on another expedition unless you not only have sufficient money to pay your way, if everything went all right, 
but you would have to have money in hand to provide for accidents, end quote. Australian geologist and fellow Antarctic explorer Douglas Mawson said it more succinctly, quote, Shackleton's sun has really set, end quote. And in a lot of ways, Mawson was right. Shackleton had come home to a population that was increasingly disinterested in polar exploration. A big part of that was the fact that World War I was raging around the globe. But to be honest, it was more than that. The idea of men battling nature to achieve great deeds had seen better days. I mean, people had reached the poles. What other great feats did the polar regions offer? Anyhow, Shackleton would linger in New Zealand and Australia, doing a series of lectures. When he finally set out for home, he would find a way to delay that as well, traveling to San Francisco to begin a tour of the United States. These lectures didn't always have the biggest crowds, but Shackleton proved to be, as always, an adept speaker. He wove in lots of patriotic themes and became sort of an unofficial British ambassador for the war effort. Shackleton would eventually make it back to England at the end of May 1917. This time, however, there would be no parades or banquets. He did go to Buckingham Palace and deliver an account of his expedition to the king, and he met with the king's mother, Queen Alexandra, who remained a big supporter. Otherwise, Shackleton came home to his family, seeing them for the first time in nearly three years. Shackleton's wife, Emily, fretted over the return of her husband, saying, quote, I only hope that he will get something to do that will interest him, as he could never be happy in a quiet domestic life, end quote. And Emily was correct. After three years of this rigid, structured world, where he was the boss, Shackleton struggled to adapt to an environment of children and family. Within a month or two, he was itching to find something to occupy his time. He did some lectures, but with the war on, he was reluctant to charge money for such things. He would offer his services to the British government, but what do you do with an aging polar explorer? The war, of course, loomed large for everyone, including Shackleton. He wanted to head to the front and fight it out alongside the boys. The problem was that he lacked military experience and was too old for frontline duty. It stung and depressed Shackleton that men he had known for decades were thick in the fight, while he sat at home and tried to contend with his children, who he didn't really know that well. Others from the Endurance Expedition were already out fighting and dying for England. He yearned for such action. There was some discussion of him taking a desk job in London, but that held little appeal. For Shackleton, these were difficult times. He had gone through so much these past years, yet now he felt empty. Today we can look at and understand the triumph of endurance, but at the time, Shackleton believed that he had not made his mark on the world. He had tried his best, he had overcome some harrowing moments, but he had not reached the South Pole or crossed Antarctica or made himself a fortune, and even the glories of the battlefield eluded him. In the book, Shackleton, an Irishman in Antarctica, authors Jonathan Shackleton and John McKenna said this of the situation, quote, he was a man who never quite managed to win, end quote. While not a failure, it was hard for Shackleton to see himself as a success, and that led the man down some troubling roads. Frustrated with domestic life, he began to spend more time away from home, often in London. He began seeing some old flames, as well as some new ones. He drank too much, smoked too much. He suffered increasingly from bouts of chest and back pains, usually shrugged off as indigestion. In the late summer of 1917, Shackleton would be assigned to the Department of Information and would get sent to South America on a goodwill-slash-fact-finding mission. His job was to help promote the British war effort and to investigate German propaganda efforts in the region. Shackleton was popular in South America, and perhaps he could even swing Argentina and Chile into the war on the side of the Allies. The job offered no salary, but Shackleton didn't care. He was excited to be doing something. Well, things did not go well. Shackleton was not a diplomat, and to try and navigate the world of international diplomacy was not something he had the patience for. It didn't help that he found the heat unbearable. 
It was so stifling, he literally got sick from it. And this all led him to drink too much. He would be recalled to England in March of 1918, his mission a failure. Shackleton's next assignment was to travel to Spitsbergen, an island north of Norway on the edge of the Arctic Ocean. While controlled by Norway, Great Britain was concerned that the Germans had their eyes on the island as it would make an excellent submarine base. By the way, the Russian Revolution had dramatically altered the war in Europe. The Bolsheviks had seized power in October of 1917, and Russia had withdrawn from the war early the following year. As a part of the peace, the Germans acquired lands in Eastern Europe, as well as Finland. Thus, the British wanted to send a team, undercover, to Spitsbergen to gauge German interest. To do this, a phony mining company was set up, and Shackleton was a part of the plot. For Shackleton, this was a great opportunity. He got to help England, and essentially do some treasure hunting. And that's because he really wanted to investigate the potential mining opportunities on the island. He thought he could make a fortune that way. Anyhow, all of this would prove to be for naught when Shackleton became ill in Tromso, Norway. Dr. James McElroy, who had been on the endurance expedition and was a part of the fake mining company, thought the boss was having a heart attack, but Shackleton refused to be examined. In the end, he would be sent back to England to recuperate. Now, this doesn't mean that Shackleton was done with the North, and that's because a contingent of troops from eight different nations, including England and France, were now in the region of Murmansk in North Russia. Murmansk is the only northern port in Russia that stays open from the ice year round. These troops were there to protect Allied interests and to assist anti-communist forces, called the White Russians, in a growing Russian civil war. This small army needed supplies, including weapons and ammunition, and food and clothing. And who better to do that than a polar expert? Enter Shackleton, who lobbied for the job. And thus, after his recovery, Shackleton would head to Murmansk to help the international force. Shackleton was there to arrange the transportation and storage of equipment and supplies. He was given the temporary rank of major. He now had the uniform he so desperately wanted. Another bonus was Shackleton was able to bring along men to help with the job, and thus he got the gang back together. This included Frank Wilde, James McElroy, Leonard Hussey, Alexander Macklin, and Frank Worsley from Endurance, as well as Joseph Stenhouse from Aurora. Eric Marshall from the Nimrod Expedition was also along for the fun. There were some concerns from military officials about Shackleton. Was he able to follow orders? Could he actually do the job? That sort of thing. But Shackleton, who arrived in October of 1918, proved up to the task. He was humble and conscientious, totally committed to the job at hand. As always, he was one of the most popular men in camp, as he had a knack for working with people. He mixed easily with both the enlisted men and officers. World War I, a.k.a. the Great War, would end in November of 1918, less than a month after Shackleton arrived in Murmansk. Despite the war's end, the fight against the Bolsheviks continued. However, support for another fight just wasn't there. And while Shackleton did a good job in the role he had been given, he quickly came to see that no one was going to let the old man get near the fighting. This inaction frustrated him. In a letter home, he would write, quote, I grow restless and feel a part of my youth is slipping away from me and that nothing matters, end quote. He struggled with being an afterthought at any conflict, adding, quote, I feel I am of no use to anyone unless I am out facing the storm, end quote. Shackleton would resign his commission in February of 1919 and head home. Now, despite leaving Murmansk, Shackleton saw northern Russia as his next big ticket to a fortune. Murmansk had only been established as a city three years earlier, and Shackleton viewed the region as ripe for development and profit. He put together big plans, securing a 99-year lease for rights to the use of the Murmansk port. The north would need goods to develop, which Shackleton would provide in exchange for timber, fishing, and mining rights. He thought he could make millions. But things were not to be for Shackleton. 
As noted, public support for the conflict was weak, and the white Russian forces were unreliable. And thus, by October of 1919, all Allied forces were withdrawn. After that, the white Russian army in the north would collapse, and the fighting would be over by March of 1920. Shackleton's dream of a northern Russia developmental zone was dead. With the war over and no economic opportunities in sight, Shackleton would return to the lecture circuit to make some money. In December of 1919, he began a five-month run, delivering two two two-hour lectures each day, six days a week. The show consisted of Shackleton speaking, plus a slideshow of his adventures. It was tedious work, telling the same stories each day, answering the same questions, shaking hand after hand, and often to a half-filled auditorium. Of it, Shackleton would say, quote, It is a strain, but then all my life is a strain, and I would not have it otherwise. End quote. Despite the drudgery of it all, it paid the bills, and it kept him in London, away from Emily and the children. By the way, his lectures would coincide with the release of his latest book, titled South. The book, again ghostwritten by Edward Saunders, was well received by the public and critics. However, Shackleton wouldn't see a dime of the book's profits. To raise money for the endurance expedition, he had essentially traded away the rights to the book, which meant he made nothing from it. He would make a few dollars from the release of Frank Hurley's film, Endurance, but even then it wasn't much, as he had signed over some of those profits as well. So, it was 1920, and 46-year-old Ernest Shackleton was restless and bored. Thus he drank and smoked, and he chased women. And he was, honestly, bitter that he was no longer this young and robust man. People had always loved to be around Shackleton, but not so much anymore. He was short-tempered and moody. Reginald James, who had been one of the scientists on the endurance expedition, said this of the boss at this time, quote, Shackleton afloat was a more likable character than Shackleton ashore, end quote. And thus Shackleton would do what so many do. He decided to go back to the well one more time. This meant doing the one thing that gave him purpose and fulfillment, the thing that had made him famous and made him feel young. He would go exploring. Shackleton pretty much understood that he was out of place in normal society. He certainly wasn't very good at being a husband or a father or a businessman. His wife Emily, by the way, was stoically loyal to her husband, despite his erratic behavior. She took care of the children, was there for Shackleton when he needed her, and kept up a brave face for family and friends. And so Ernest Shackleton decided to go back into the exploration business, the only thing he really knew how to do. Later, when asked about his decision, he would say, quote, I go exploring because I like it and because it's my job, end quote. The only question now was, where? No one had crossed Antarctica. Should he try again? To that idea, I think Shackleton understood he was in no physical condition for such an arduous journey, and if he failed a second time, that would be sort of humiliating. Instead, Shackleton would turn to the north for his next expedition. He set his sights on exploring the Beaufort Sea, an 1,800-square-mile, or 475,000-kilometer, region north of Alaska, the Yukon, and the Northwest Territories. It is part of the Arctic Ocean. The western side of the Northwest Passage comes out at the Beaufort Sea. Now, today we know this area to be just a bunch of ice, but in Shackleton's time, the region was mostly a mystery. Many people believe there could be large landmasses within the impenetrable ice, and maybe it offered a route to the North Pole. Of the Beaufort Sea, Shackleton would say it would, quote, be of the greatest scientific interest to the world, apart from the possible economic value, end quote. With this vague plan in mind, Shackleton began to look around for investors and allies. This included Dr. Alexander Macklin, from the Endurance Expedition, who would work with Shackleton to get the enterprise off the ground. The two figured they would need at least 50,000 pounds to get things underway. Now, the Royal Geographical Society looked at Shackleton's proposal and gave it their approval, 
while suggesting that he talk to the Canadian government for financial support. The Canadians were trying to stake a claim to the lands to the north and were wary of the Americans and Dutch trying to gain a foothold in the area. To drum up interest in funds, Shackleton drew up a prospectus and worked with some newspapers to publish stories about the proposed expedition. However, things just didn't go well. The expedition simply had little appeal to investors or the public. For investors, there just wasn't a payoff. And for the public, well, there wasn't really any sexy storyline to capture their attention. And besides, polar exploration was old hat. The North and South Poles had been reached. A new generation of adventurers were setting their sights on the Third Pole, the highest spot in the world. And with that, I would be remiss if I didn't plug the George Mallory series, which details this race to be the first to stand atop Everest. Anyhow, Shackleton would make a stop at the British Admiralty, his hand held out asking for a ship and funding, but no luck. However, the Canadian government was interested, which gave him hope. And then in late 1920, Shackleton would run into John Rowett, an old school friend. Rowett had made a fortune in the rum business, and he was known for his generous support of charitable causes. After Shackleton told him about his upcoming enterprise, Rowett would agree to back the expedition, and not just part of it, but pretty much the entire thing. The final price tag was probably around 70,000 pounds. Anyhow, Rowett's backing was beyond anything Shackleton could have imagined. It was basically a blank check. And to be honest, Rowett probably knew that he wasn't going to get much of his money back. But the man wanted Shackleton to go exploring on his terms. There would be no boards or committees or outside influences to muck up his old friend's dreams. As I said, it was beyond anything Shackleton could have hoped for. So with money in hand, Shackleton would go about planning his next venture. He acquired a ship, a Norwegian whaler called the Foka One. Shackleton would rename the ship Quest, the name a suggestion from his wife. Things progressed steadily until May of 1921, and that's when word reached Shackleton that the Canadian government was withholding their support for the expedition, at least for now. The problem was that spending on polar expeditions was not popular with the Canadian public, and with elections scheduled for later in the year, current leadership was wary about backing anything that was seen as a waste of taxpayer money and thus the government bowed out, but said to check back in a year. Well, that didn't suit Shackleton. He wasn't going to wait around for another year. He didn't even know if the current regime would win re-election. Instead, Shackleton would say goodbye to the Beaufort Sea and head back to the land he knew best, Antarctica. The new goals of the quest would be to carry out an extensive coastal survey of the Antarctic coast and exploration. If that sounds vague, you are wrong. It is, in fact, really, really vague. Without any single great objective, the quest expedition was a mishmash of all sorts of things. One part was economic. They would be searching for things such as coal and nickel, and then there was the desire to locate economic opportunities such as fishing, whaling, and sealing. Another part of the expedition would be geographic. They would improve charts by mapping 2,000 miles of coast, or 3,200 kilometers, and they would go searching for some lost islands that had been reported back in the 1840s. A third part would be scientific, the expedition would try to find good locations to establish scientific and meteorological stations and even a place to build an airfield. They would also study glaciers and weather patterns. And there was even a fantastical part of the enterprise, the possibility of visiting the South Atlantic archipelago of Trinidad and Martin Vaz, which I am not sure I pronounced correctly. There they would go looking for the buried treasure of pirate William Kidd. I'm not kidding about that. Pun intended. The idea was probably more of a way to generate publicity. After all, you don't see newspapers publishing many stories about finding a good location to set up a weather station. But looking for pirate treasure? Well, that's some good clickbait. For this grand adventure, Shackleton would get the band back together. Frank Wilde would be second in command, and Frank Worsley would captain the ship. 
Doctors James McElroy and Alexander Macklin were on board, as was Leonard Hussey and his beloved banjo. Hussey was back as a meteorologist, but he was also now a fully qualified doctor. There were other lesser-known men from the Endurance Expedition, including the cook, Charles Green. There were even a few men from Nimrod, as well as from Robert Falcon Scott's Terra Nova Expedition. Shackleton tried to get Tom Crean back on board, but the man had a wife and a growing family, and turned down the boss, although he admitted he was tempted. To be honest, it all kind of reeked of old men making a go at one last great hurrah. In fact, in the book Shackleton, an Irishman in Antarctica, the authors would say, quote, The quest expedition was Shackleton's last great throw of the dice. End quote. For the expedition, the quest would be refitted with all the latest technology and bells and whistles. There was a heated crow's nest, a state of the art wireless set, and an autograph, which recorded the ship's speed and course. And there would be a plane. Yes, you heard that right, there was going to be a plane. It would give the quest a tool for exploration that no one had ever enjoyed. To handle the plane, Shackleton brought on Australian biologist and aviator George Wilkins, plus New Zealander Roderick Carr. The latter was to fly the plane. We can't forget that Shackleton loved to have gadgets and gizmos, even if just for publicity. And speaking of publicity, the expedition would also bring along a Boy Scout. Yes, again, you heard that right, a Boy Scout. Shackleton's wife, Emily, was involved with the Scouts, and when a newspaper suggested a contest, she championed the idea. Thus, a contest was set up, and there would be 1,700 applications for the job. From there, the names were whittled down to 10, and then 2, Norman Mooney and James Marr. In the end, they would take both. Shackleton loved the publicity it brought him, even if many serious explorers scoffed at him for the stunt. As the quest was prepared for departure in the summer of 1921, Shackleton's health continued to suffer due to the stress. Of course, he did the worst thing he could do, which was to drink and smoke too much. But for many people, it was obvious that Shackleton didn't have the energy and stamina of a decade earlier. He was 47 but looked older. He suffered from back and shoulder and chest pains and chronic fatigue. He lacked drive and focus. There was, really, no way Shackleton should have been undertaking an expedition. But this was all that he knew, all that he felt he was good at. Still, things moved forward. Shackleton would meet with King George, who gave him a silk union jack and his blessing. And there was a meeting with the aging and frail Queen Alexandra, who gave Shackleton her personal talisman to take on the journey. The British Admiralty and the Royal Geographical Society would give their official blessing to the expedition, but without much enthusiasm. Most everyone felt that the expedition's goals were too vague. The quest would depart from London for Plymouth on September 17, 1921. There were big crowds to send the ship off. Quest would spend a week in Plymouth, where Shackleton would be able to spend some time with Emily. And then, on September 24th, the Quest put to sea after a farewell dinner with John Rowett. Shackleton would write, quote, Shore and sea are still, and in the calm, lazy, gathering dusk on a glassy sea, we move on the long quest. Providence is with us even now, end quote. The destination was Cape Town in South Africa, where they would pick up supplies and parts, including items required for the plane. The Quest, by the way, was not a big ship. Built in 1917, she measured only 111 feet, or 34 meters, in length. If things went as planned, she would be the smallest ship to ever venture into the Antarctic ice pack. Now, from the start, it was clear that Quest was not an ideal vessel. There were only 18 men on board, but things were cramped and overloaded. And while the ship was supposed to make 8 knots, it was only getting 5. Thus, things were much slower than anticipated. Captain Frank Worsley didn't like the ship. He felt it was too small for the big ocean and was difficult to handle. And then on the way south, the ship would develop a crack in the boiler, plus a crankshaft was out of alignment. 
This would force Shackleton to make an unscheduled week-long stop in Lisbon, Portugal, where repairs were made. After that, it was off to Madeira Island off the northwest coast of Africa. They would reach Madeira on October 16th. Of all the problems, Worsley would say, quote, the voyage appeared ill-starred from the beginning, end quote. At Madeira, Shackleton would let go of the expedition's photographer, John B. Mason, and one of the Boy Scouts, Norman Mooney, due to chronic seasickness. Quest would then head south. Before long, Shackleton would order the ship to Rio de Janeiro to address recurring engine problems. They would reach Rio on November 21st, and it was determined that the engine needed to be completely stripped and repaired. This would take nearly four weeks to accomplish. The delay was not a good one. The weather was hot, and Shackleton was stressed by it all. He responded by drinking. The rebuilding of the engines also forced Shackleton to make changes to his plans. He was told the engines just weren't powerful enough to deal with the heavy ice, and thus he needed to go south as soon as possible before the pack thickened. This meant that he would sail directly for South Georgia Island and bypass Cape Town. This was a major blow, as there were critical supplies and gear to be picked up. This included parts for the plane, which couldn't fly without the parts. This would sideline one of the truly unique facets of the Quest expedition. The Quest would thus head to South Georgia to pick up more coal in mid-December. Shackleton would send a letter to Emily talking about the struggles and finish by saying, quote, I am doing my best, end quote. In the book, Shackleton and Irishman in Antarctica, the authors would make a comment about this line, saying, quote, There is something forlorn in this last phrase. Shackleton had never been one to talk about doing his best. Rather, he had been the one who got things done in spite of everything, end quote. I think this really hits things on the head. The typical Shackleton swagger was gone. When people asked about the plans for Quest, he was evasive and vague with his answers. It was as if Shackleton didn't even know what he was going to do. En route to South Georgia on December 17th, Shackleton reported feeling unwell and would faint. He blamed the weather and refused to let anyone examine him. The doctors suspected Shackleton had had another heart attack. He took to opening a bottle of champagne each morning as he said it helped with his indigestion. It was a stark contrast to earlier voyages where Shackleton banned alcohol except for celebrations. On Christmas, a planned dinner was postponed due to severe storms that would last more than a week. And then, on December 28th, the ship's furnace was found to be leaking. And shortly after that, the fresh water tanks were found to be leaking as well. It left Shackleton in a foul mood. Nothing seemed to be going right, and he found a reason to complain about everything. The crankiness only passed after he had something to drink or been given pain medication. One of the crew compared him to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. On New Year's Day 1922, the bad weather finally subsided. The next day they would spot an iceberg, the first signs of what lay ahead. Still, Shackleton was tired. That day he would write, quote, The years that have gone since in the pride of young manhood, I first went forth to fight. I grow old and tired, but must always lead. End quote. The quest would reach South Georgia a few days later, putting into port at Gritviken. Shackleton went ashore, and his mood lightened as he visited people and places that held special meaning to him. It all seemed so long ago, but in reality, it had only been six years. No matter, it raised the spirits of Shackleton and the entire crew. On January 4th, the crew would finally have the Christmas meal that they had missed due to the bad weather. That night, Shackleton played some cards with the men before retiring, saying he was tired. And then at 2 a.m. the next morning, Shackleton signaled to Dr. Alexander Macklin to come to his cabin. Macklin found the boss suffering from pain in his back and face. Shackleton asked for some drugs to cope with it all. Macklin told Shackleton he needed to rest, and he was overdoing things. To which Shackleton said, quote, You always wanted me to give up things. What is it I ought to give up? End quote. The doctor was blunt in his reply, saying, quote, 
chiefly alcohol boss, I don't think it agrees with you, end quote. Macklin would give Shackleton some medication, and then shortly thereafter, he had a violent seizure. By 3 a.m., Ernest Shackleton was dead, the result of a massive heart attack. He was 47 years old. Wilde and Worsley were called to the cabin and told the news. Macklin would later write, quote, The cause of death, I feel perfectly sure, angina pectoris. I laid him out and fixed things up, turned out the lamp, which was burning, and shut the door, end quote. Later, Macklin would examine the heart when embalming Shackleton's body and confirm the diagnosis of a heart attack brought on by heart disease. At breakfast, Frank Wilde would bring the crew together, telling them, quote, Boys, I've got some sad news for you. The boss died suddenly at 3 o'clock in the morning. This expedition will carry on, end quote. The quest would remain at South Georgia for a couple of weeks before continuing on with their mission, but not before sending Shackleton's body on the way back to England. For that, the body was placed on a steamer bound for Montevideo, Uruguay. Leonard Hussey volunteered to accompany the coffin. In Montevideo, Shackleton was feted by the locals, who loved him. His coffin, draped in a Union Jack, was escorted from the ship by a hundred cadets. An honor guard would stand over the coffin night and day. Also, roses were set atop the coffin daily. When word reached Emily about the death of her husband, she sent word back to Hussey to turn around. England had never really been home to her husband. She asked that he be brought back to South Georgia and buried there. Shackleton's coffin would thus head back to South Georgia, this time on the steamer Woodville, which was the same ship that had taken the James Caird back to England after her legendary voyage in 1916. And thus Shackleton's body was returned to South Georgia, arriving on February 27th during a blizzard. Services were held on March 5th at the Lutheran Church in Gritviken, and he was buried. The quest would return to South Georgia in April. To honor the boss, the men built a stone cairn on the site overlooking Gritviken's harbor, as well as a cross. Alexander Macklin wrote this of the memorial, quote, The cairn and the cross forms a conspicuous mark. I think this is as the boss would have had it himself. Standing lonely on an island far from civilization, surrounded by tempestuous seas, and in the vicinity of one of his greatest exploits, end quote. In the book Shackleton, an Irishman in Antarctica, the authors note, quote, Shackleton's true home was on that no-man's land of ice and snow, where nationality meant nothing and comradeship meant everything, end quote. I think that states the situation quite eloquently. Word of Shackleton's death was greeted by sadness around the world, but not like when Robert Falcon Scott had died a decade earlier. One reason for this was the fact that Shackleton's body was not brought back to England, which meant that there was no great funeral procession. And we can't forget, he was Irish, not English, and he was definitely not a favorite of the exploration or scientific establishment. Still, there would be a memorial service at St. Paul's Cathedral in London with representatives of the King, the Admiralty, and the Royal Geographical Society in attendance. And that, my friends, is the life of explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton. It's been a heck of a journey for us on this show. But we are not quite done today. There are some loose ends to wrap up, and we have to do a bit of discussion about the legacy of Shackleton. So here's what we're going to do. First, I'll give a brief rundown on the rest of the quest expedition, as it was Shackleton's final endeavor, and I think it's only fitting to know how it all ended. Second, I'll talk a little about the important figures involved in Shackleton's life, including his family. Third, we will do a review of Shackleton's life, talking about his accomplishments and failures, that sort of thing. And fourth, we will finish up by talking about the legacy of Shackleton. This will include a historic rundown of the shifting perceptions toward the boss and other explorers, such as Robert Falcon Scott. And so, let us start by taking a look at the quest expedition. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The death of Ernest Shackleton did not end the Quest expedition but it certainly put a damper on things. Frank Wilde was determined to keep the expedition moving because that is what the boss would have wanted. Wilde would stick with Shackleton's plans, moving south to begin coastal survey work of Antarctica. Quest, however, continued to have problems. Storms hit and the ship began to leak, and coal consumption was high due to the weak engine and rough waters. The expedition would reach the pack ice on February 4th, making it the smallest ship ever to enter the polar ice. However, by February 12th, the ice was too thick and threatened to crush the quest, forcing a retreat. A series of attempts to push south followed, all thwarted by the ice. Any chance to actually reach the Antarctic coast and do some exploring was pretty much gone. This aimless, seemingly purposeless journey frustrated the crew. Wild, while respected by the men, did not have Shackleton's tact and patience and ability to improvise, and morale suffered. Now, one thing the expedition did accomplish was to investigate the presence of some islands in the Weddell Sea, first reported by James Ross Clark back in the 1840s. Well, the quest would reach the location of these lost islands and would find nothing. It was a bust. On March 15th, something would happen that must have terrified the men who had survived endurance, and that is, the quest would get frozen in the ice. Because of the ship's weak engine, the ship would struggle to break out, and it would not be until March 21st that the quest would reach open sea. With coal running low, Wilde decided to go to Elephant Island to hunt seals. He wanted to use seal blubber to supplement the ship's dwindling coal supply. The quest reached Elephant Island on March 25th. Wilde wanted to land at the old camp, but the weather prevented such an exercise. Instead, he and the others would have to view the camp from the deck of the quest with binoculars. The ship would find seals on the other side of the island and then head back to South Georgia, where the men held the aforementioned ceremony to honor Shackleton. The quest would remain in South Georgia for a month, making repairs and taking on coal and other supplies. Wilde would then sail for Cape Town in South Africa. Along the way, Quest would visit some remote but inhabited islands to the southwest of Cape Town. They would take geological and botanical samples from each location. Quest would finally reach Cape Town on June 18, 1922. Frank Wilde had hoped to refit the ship and try and make good on Shackleton's original plans, but upon reaching port, Representatives of the expedition's financier, John Rowett, would be waiting. The expedition was done. With Shackleton's death, there was no need for anything more. It was time to go home. Thus, Quest would sail back to England, reaching Plymouth on September 16th, one year after departing. And this return to England would mark the end of an era, literally. It was a wrap on the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, which had begun 25 years earlier with the Belgica expedition. No figure looms over the era as prominently as Ernest Shackleton as he led or was a part of four of the era's major expeditions. 
there would be no other major Antarctic expeditions for seven years, and that would mark what is called the Mechanical Age. It was no longer man against nature, but man and technology overcoming the challenges of the world. Anyhow, regarding the Quest expedition, it was, to be honest, a failure. The ship itself had been a major problem. In addition to all the mechanical issues, it just wasn't big enough or powerful enough to do the job needed. Shackleton's decision to not go to Cape Town meant that there had been no plane, something that would have offered the team a unique opportunity to map and explore the continent. Another thing not talked about was sledge dogs. Shackleton did not take any. That meant there was little way to actually explore once they reached anywhere. Now, you can't argue that Frank Wilde's leadership wasn't helpful, but to be honest, it's doubtful Shackleton would have done much better. The expedition's lack of focus and design made it doomed for failure. Other than a handful of papers and articles generated by the data collected by the expedition, there was little to show for the team's year-long venture. And that brings us to the end of the Quest expedition. At this point, I want to do a summary of some of the key people involved in Shackleton's life. The first person I want to mention is Frank Wilde, Shackleton's hard-nosed and loyal wingman. Wilde had been a part of five polar expeditions in his life. This included Discovery, Nimrod, Endurance, Quest, plus Douglas Mawson's Antarctic expedition. His leadership on Elephant Island in 1917 was critical to getting those men home alive. Because of all of this, he ranks as one of the great figures of the era. After Quest, Wilde would marry and move to South Africa to farm. However, five years of drought would force him to give it up. After getting divorced and married again, Wilde would spend much of the 1930s in a variety of jobs, most to just make ends meet. These jobs including that of a barkeep, a prospector, a storekeeper, a quarry manager, just to name a few. He would also give occasional lectures, talking about endurance and his time in Antarctica. Wilde was not well off in his later years, suffering from ill health. He would die in 1939 at the age of 66, the result of pneumonia and diabetes. He was cremated and buried in Johannesburg. However, Frank Wilde was not quite settled. And that's because in 2011, Wilde's ashes were taken from South Africa and brought to Gritvik in South Georgia. There he was buried on the right-hand side of Shackleton's grave. Wilde's relatives and Shackleton's granddaughter, Alexander Shackleton, attended the ceremony. The grave is marked with a granite block with the inscription, Frank Wilde, 1873-1939, Shackleton's right-hand man. I find that all very appropriate. In Wilde's life, he received numerous awards, including the Royal Geographical Society's Back Award, as well as their prestigious Patrons Medal. He was awarded a Commander of the Order of the British Empire, a CBE, for his service to Great Britain. And finally, he would receive the British government's Polar Medal with four clasps, only one of two men to do so. The other, by the way, was Ernest Joyce, who I talked about last time, and I forgot to mention that impressive fact about him. So there you go, Frank Wilde and Ernest Joyce, the only men to ever receive five Polar Awards. Another interesting note, Wilde's CBE and four-bar Polar Medal sold for £132,000 in 2009. Frank Wilde is honored in many other ways. Cape Wilde and Point Wilde on Elephant Island are named after him. There are two mountains in Antarctica that bear his name, and his image has appeared on postage stamps, and there have been several books written about him. There was also a documentary produced about Wilde by the BBC. And finally, a statue of Wilde was erected in 2016 in his hometown of Skelton. Well, Frank Wilde got a lot of recap, but the guy deserves it. Let's move on to Frank Worsley. Worsley was the captain of Endurance and Quest, but his navigation of the James carried from Elephant Island to South Georgia is what made him a legend. He served in World War I in the Navy, and then after Quest, he would go on to have quite a colorful life. He would take part in an adventure-filled expedition to the Arctic, for which he would write a book, 
before settling down in London. From there, Worsley would write more books and frequently lecture on his adventures, leaning especially on his time with Shackleton. His presentations were well-received by the public and critics. In 1934, Worsley, even at age 61, had the adventure bug. He would go searching for pirate treasure off Costa Rica. And while he didn't find any treasure, he would add to his ever-growing tales to tell in his lectures. In World War II, Worsley would help out in various fashions, including serving as a commander of a Red Cross training center. He would eventually go back to sea, being named master of a merchant ship in 1941. However, he lied about his age, saying he was 64, when in reality he was 69. Once his true age was revealed, it was back to the reserve pool. In 1942, Worsley found himself working as a trainer for the Royal Naval Reserves. However, later that year, he became ill, the diagnosis, lung cancer. He would die on February 1, 1943. His ashes were scattered at the mouth of the Thames River. Worsley's wife, Jean, would donate his unpublished diaries to the Scott Polar Research Institute after his death. Frank Worsley is remembered in many ways. There is a Mount Worsley on South Georgia, a Cape Worsley in the British Antarctic Territory, the Worsley Ice Falls in the Ross Dependency, and Worsley Harbor in Spitsbergen. And finally, in his hometown of Akaroa, New Zealand, a bust of Worsley was erected in 2004. Next up is Dr. Alexander Macklin. Macklin served in World War I before joining the Quest Expedition. After that, he set up practice in Dundee, Scotland. In World War II, he returned to active service, getting stationed in Africa and rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel. He would later move to Aberdeen, retiring from practice in 1962. He died in 1967 at the age of 78. He and his wife had two sons. Our second doctor was James McElroy. A veteran of the Nimrod and Endurance Expeditions, McElroy had been badly wounded in World War I. For much of his life, he would work as a surgeon for a shipping line. One exception was World War II, which almost saw him lose his life again. His ship was sunk by a German U-boat off Africa, and McElroy and some other survivors would float in an open lifeboat for five days before being rescued. He died in 1968 at the age of 89. McElroy Peak on South Georgia Island is named after the doctor. Next up is our banjo-playing meteorologist, Leonard Hussey. Like many of the endurance men, Hussey served in World War I as an officer in a combat unit. By the time of the Quest Expedition, Hussey had become a doctor and would serve in that capacity in London until the outbreak of World War II. Hussey then joined the Royal Air Force as a medical officer. In 1946, he received an OBE, Order of the British Empire. He retired in 1957, then passed away in 1964 at the age of 72. Hussey wrote an account of the Endurance Expedition and received numerous medals for his service in the Antarctic and two world wars. The next man I want to mention is Charles Green, the cook from both the Endurance and Quest expeditions. Green gets overlooked in all of this, but he was routinely praised for his ability to work in terrible conditions and with limited options. Green joined the Royal Navy after Endurance, and he would be wounded in the war. After Quest, he returned to the Merchant Navy, before retiring in 1931. On the Quest expedition, Shackleton had given Green a set of lantern slides from the Endurance years, and he would take those slides and give lectures about the Endurance expedition throughout his life. In World War II, Green served as a fire watcher in the city of Hall. He would die in 1974 at the age of 85, the last surviving member of the Endurance Expedition. The next person I'll talk about is Hubert Wilkins, the biologist-slash-aviator on the Quest Expedition. Well, as you know, the plane never got off the ground, but Wilkins would go on to lead a pretty amazing life. Already a decorated veteran of World War I, Wilkins and Ben Eilson would go on to become the first men to ever land a plane on drift ice, which happened north of Alaska. In 1928, Wilkins and Eilson made a trans-Arctic crossing, meaning over the pole, 
from Alaska to the island of Spitsbergen, just north of Norway. For this, he was knighted. Wilkins would continue his explorations of the polar regions from the air and underwater. The latter took place when he tried to lead a submarine under the ice to the North Pole. The attempt failed, but he demonstrated that a submarine could operate under the polar ice cap. Wilkins would write several books in his lifetime and is considered one of Australia's greatest explorers. He died in 1958 at the age of 70. The Wilkins Sound, Wilkins Coast, and the Wilkins Ice Shelf, all in Antarctica, are named after him. The final member of Shackleton's Antarctic travels is James Marr, one of the Boy Scouts who accompanied the Quest expedition. Well, Marr really didn't do anything of note on the expedition, but he would go on to have a respected scientific career, primarily as a marine biologist. After college, he participated in the British, Australian, and New Zealand Antarctic Research Expedition with Sir Douglas Mawson, as well as several other scientific expeditions in the Antarctic region. In World War II, he would lead a small team in Operation Tepperin, which was a secret British expedition to secure control of the region around the Antarctic Peninsula. Marr would die in 1965 at the age of 63. Mount Marr in Antarctica is named after him. His 460-page Natural History and Geography of Antarctic Krill was published three years after his death. Now, with the members of Shackleton's expeditions covered, I have one more person to talk about, and a ship, before we finish up with Shackleton's family. The person I want to mention is John Rowett, the financier of the Quest expedition. After Shackleton died, Rowett's team saw that the Quest expedition was not worth continuing and recalled Frank Wilde and the ship home. Rowett, to honor his old classmate, would acquire the James Caird and present it to Shackleton's alma mater, Dulwich College in London, where it resides to this day. As the Quest expedition's primary backer, Rowett Island in the South Shetland Islands was named after him. Also, a mountain on Gough Island in the South Atlantic was named after Rowett as well. Sadly, Rowett would commit suicide in 1924 when he believed his businesses were failing. However, Rowett is remembered for his generous charity work in his lifetime. He is the co-founder of the Rowett Research Institute in Aberdeen, Scotland. The institute is a center of food and nutrition research and still exists. So that wraps up the people associated with Shackleton's career as an explorer. But I want to add the final ship to accompany him south, and that's the Quest. Well, the Quest would go on to be refitted and used in Arctic exploration, including the British Arctic Air Route Expedition in 1930 and several Greenland endeavors. In between Arctic work, it would be employed as a sealer. And during World War II, Quest would go to work as a minesweeper in a cargo vessel, and then back to sealing duties after the war. In 1962, on a seal hunting expedition, the ship would get trapped in the ice off the north coast of Labrador in Canada and sink. The crew was rescued. Part of the ship has been saved, including the deck house, which was Shackleton's quarters during the Quest expedition. And with that done, I want to finish this section by talking about Shackleton's family. I'll start with Frank Shackleton's earnest near-to-well brother and suspected thief of the Irish crown jewels. He would spend 15 months in jail for fraud and on his release change his name from Shackleton to Mellor. Little is known about his later years, but in 1934, he opened up an antique shop in Chichester, Sussex. He died in 1941. Next, I want to talk about Emily, Shackleton's wife. Emily Dorman was, in a lot of ways, a saint. She had had a husband who was not particularly good at being a husband or a father, yet she supported Ernest and raised their children without complaint. Shackleton's philandering was well known, so it would have been a humiliating thing for her to endure. With the death of her husband, Emily would find herself beset by creditors as her husband was deeply in debt. Luckily, she had a small trust to get her by, plus well-to-do family and friends. Still, she lived modestly for the rest of her life. 
Emily worked diligently to preserve and promote her husband's memory, including having family friend Hugh Robert Mill write a biography of Shackleton, published in 1928. Emily died in 1936 at the age of 68 after a long illness. The Shackletons had three children, but there's not much available about the two oldest. Raymond would become an engineer, get married, and die in 1960 at the age of 55. The couple's daughter, Cicely, would die in 1957 at the age of 50. It does not appear either Raymond or Cicely would have any children of their own. The Shackleton's youngest child, Edward, would go on to attend Oxford and become a geographer and a climber. He would serve in the Royal Air Force in World War II and then go into politics after the war. Over the next 25 years, Edward would be elected to Parliament, serve as the leader of the House of Lords, and Minister of Defense, just to name a few highlights. He would later become president of the Royal Geographical Society, rather ironic, considering the organization was never much of a friend to his father. Edward Shackleton would receive many awards in his life, including an OBE, as well as receiving the title of Baron. He died in 1994 at the age of 83. He and his wife had two children, a son, Charles Edward Ernest Shackleton, and a daughter, Alexandra. Alexandra continues to work to preserve and promote the legacy of her grandfather as the president of the James Caird Society. In 2013, a team of British adventurers recreated Shackleton's epic voyage to South Georgia Island. Alexandra Shackleton would meet them there, and they would share a glass of her grandfather's favorite Scottish whiskey, McKinley's, at his grave. And with that, we wrap up that section of the story. And it takes us to what I'll call the review of Shackleton's life. We'll do that, and then just sort of go from there and move into the legacy of Shackleton, which is quite complex. So let's start with a good old-fashioned checklist of stuff that Ernest Shackleton could crow about. First, no person led as many expeditions to the Antarctic as Ernest Shackleton, and because of that, no one is more associated with the heroic age of Antarctic exploration than Shackleton. Second, as a member of the Discovery Team, he helped set a further South record. Third, as the leader of the Nimrod expedition, he got within 100 miles of the South Pole and again set a further South record. His team would become the first to reach the magnetic South Pole and climb Mount Erebus. As an explorer, Shackleton's discovery of Beardmore Glacier, which provided a route onto the Antarctic Plateau, was probably his greatest discovery. It demonstrated how the South Pole could be reached, and Amundsen and Scott would follow in his footsteps a few years later, both men reaching the Pole, although Scott's team did not survive the return journey. Fourth, Shackleton's endurance expedition, while a failure of its original goals, is one of the greatest stories of survival in history, and the voyage of the James Caird is probably the most daring and miraculous ocean voyage of any small watercraft in history. Shackleton's courage and optimism and imagination demonstrated how to manage a difficult situation, even to this day. It is a topic we will discuss a bit later. I have to stress that Shackleton, despite not having achieved the pole or crossed the continent, had done a lot of great stuff. He had 50-plus awards and decorations from more than a dozen different nations. He had been knighted. All of that is a testimony to his achievements. Now, with the checkboxes of cool things, there are some not-so-cool things. On a personal level, Shackleton had a lot to be desired. People loved the guy. He had a wonderful, engaging personality. But he routinely cheated on his wife. He was not around for his children. And he had a chronic need for attention and affection that crippled him in many ways. His drinking later in life did not help him either. As an explorer, Shackleton did a lot of really good things, but as I noted earlier, he never really felt like a success. He got close to the South Pole, but not quite, and he never made that fortune he always dreamed of. In some ways, he was so close, especially with regards to the Nimrod expedition. If he had just embraced the use of dogs, or made his base at the Bay of Whales, or been a bit more lucky, he might have reached the South Pole and returned. 
and on the endurance expedition, if he had just had another week of decent weather, he might have been able to make his try at crossing the continent. But even if he had done any or both of those things, I'd argue that Shackleton would not have been satisfied with his lot in life. Sure, he would have had more fame and money, but his personality seemed to prevent him from being happy sitting around London or wherever. He would have probably just become a debauched celebrity, or a guy always on the lookout for his next big challenge to stroke his ego. So, all that said, let's return to Shackleton's world at the time of his death. As we discussed, the quest expedition marked the end of the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. Aside from climbing the great mountains of the world, this was the last epic era of what I'll call man against nature. This was men, and sometimes women, facing the elements and environment and taking it on head to head. It was a very romantic notion in a lot of ways, pure and raw. The mechanical age would follow, airplanes and snow tractors along with it. And all of this would culminate with the space race. It was men and women developing mechanical technology to achieve great things. With Shackleton's death, he would get slotted into the second tier of polar explorers. Perry and Amundsen and Scott were the pinnacle of greatness. Shackleton, great deeds, but not great accomplishments. As noted, there was a biography of Shackleton put out, and in 1932, a statue of Shackleton was unveiled at the Royal Geographical's Kensington headquarters. But that was pretty much it. By contrast, there were more than 30 statues and busts and memorials dedicated to Scott, and that was just in England. Shackleton was an afterthought. Much of this was very deliberate. The British scientific and exploration community had really gone all in with the legend of Robert Falcon Scott. He was a military man and a leader. He did things honorably and properly. He was there for science and so on and so forth. In England, he was the hero of the polar age, and his reputation soared in the decades after his death. This kind of thing was not uncommon, and not just in England. Nations loved to find heroes, and they often propped them up at the expense of others. To talk about their foibles was just not done, especially not when their families were still alive. So, after World War II, there was a gradual change in approach towards literature and art as well as history. It wasn't about promoting myths. It was about realism and truth. It was about peeling back the layers of a man or woman and trying to discover the real person. Well, this idea began to take hold around polar explorers, and people began to re-examine men like Shackleton. For Shackleton, the big shift would happen with a new biography of him by Marjorie and James Fisher in 1957. But even more important was the 1959 book, Endurance, Shackleton's Incredible Voyage, by American journalist Alfred Lansing. Lansing, a Purple Heart recipient in World War II, would interview most of the survivors of the expedition, go through diaries and logs, and end up writing one of the greatest books about exploration and survival. Now, the book was well-received at the time, but it was hardly a blockbuster. As for Lansing, he would never write another book, as he never found a subject that wowed him like the Shackleton story. He would die in 1975 at the age of 54. Fast forward to 1986, and Lansing's book had been out of print for 25 years. However, as we noted, things had evolved with regards to the perception of polar explorers, and it was not just guys like Shackleton who were being looked at with a new and critical lens. People took a fresh look at Robert Falcon Scott, and what they saw was not so great. So while Scott's star waned, Shackleton's rose. When Endurance was reprinted in 1986, it did well, selling 5,000 copies. Thus, a new generation of men and women began to find out the story of Shackleton and Endurance. This was a slow, gradual rise in awareness of the guy, and as people dug deeper, what they uncovered was some pretty wild stuff. Yes, Shackleton's exploits were amazing, but in a fascinating twist, people looked at Shackleton and asked how. How had he managed to keep his crew from going crazy? How had he managed to keep them positive and productive? 
how they survived all the little things that can cause men in terrible situations to tear themselves apart. And that would lead to an examination of Shackleton's tactics regarding the management of a situation in a time of crisis. People saw what he did and said, that's brilliant. This is how you manage a group of people in a terrible situation. And thus today, you find articles and courses and executive coaches using Shackleton as a case study for leadership, and especially leadership in a time of crisis. There are workshops and courses you can attend. I saw one run by the Harvard Business School, all using Shackleton's experience during the endurance expedition as a way to manage a business or an organization in a difficult time. These courses acknowledge Shackleton's faults, but then they focus on his leadership and how it got his team through crisis after crisis. And while I don't really know much about these courses, they tout things such as being nimble in your decision-making, about being honest and transparent with your team, about leading by example. It's about being loyal and asking for loyalty in return. It's about removing class barriers, putting people in positions so they can succeed, and keeping people busy and feeling valued. And another thing is keeping potential problem people close and engaged so they don't spread discontent. Another thing they talk about is hiring good people and trusting them to do their job. And then there's the concept of being nimble and proactive in your decision making. And in a related topic, it is about not being afraid to make mistakes and certainly don't dwell on them if you do or let them cripple your decision making. And finally, there is the ability to project confidence in a better future. This was such a huge part of Shackleton's personality. To make the men believe that tomorrow was a better day, that was an extraordinary ability. Author Michael Smith, in his book Shackleton by Endurance We Conquer, said this, quote, If there were touches of genius in his leadership, they could be found in the way Shackleton held together disparate groups of men in appalling conditions, making sure that disruptive cliques were not formed and that everyone was treated equally. He never took unnecessary risks, was able to adapt to the constantly changing circumstances, and never asked a man to do something he would not do himself. But Shackleton's supreme achievement was that he instilled hope and belief that they would all survive. End quote. Now, I have to say that I think the whole Shackleton as a genius is sort of amusing. And that's because Shackleton's messes were often the result of his own making. But that aside, his leadership qualities are exceptional and inspirational. And regarding that, I think we are missing out if I don't remark on the amazing loyalty, even devotion, Shackleton's men had toward the boss. Without question, not everyone liked Shackleton. But by God, those that did would go to war for the man in a heartbeat. I think it's so revealing that men would come back, time and time again, to go adventuring with Shackleton. As noted, these were men of different nationalities, social class, and education. Yet that didn't matter to Shackleton. This egalitarian approach towards his fellow human beings was almost unheard of at this time. There is one story that happened during the dark times of endurance, on the ice of the Weddell Sea, or trying to get to Elephant Island, I don't exactly recall. But it was at a time that things didn't look so good. Anyhow, Shackleton was talking with one of the crewmen, and he asked the guy what he planned to do when he got home. The crewman didn't hesitate and said something like, Why, I'm going on your next expedition, boss. I love that. It was the worst of times, the time when a leader is often looked at with bitterness and resentment, but not with Shackleton. I don't think any of these men thought that Shackleton was perfect, but they certainly loved being a part of a Shackleton adventure. So much so that they came back again and again. And that is the ultimate testament to Shackleton's leadership. And so, over the years, Shackleton's reputation has far outpaced perceptions of the guy in his own lifetime. His story, especially the endurance saga, is just so compelling. And thus, since the 1990s, there have been multiple biographies written about Shackleton. One of my favorites is Michael Smith's Shackleton by Endurance We Conquer, which I think really looks at him with a fair and even hand. 
The topic of polar explorers has so captivated the public, there have been numerous books on all sorts of individuals from the era, including Robert Falcon Scott, Frank Worsley, Frank Wilde, Tom Crean, Frank Hurley, and many others. There have been documentaries made about Shackleton, movies, plays, and more than one TV miniseries. And I can promise you I'm missing some stuff in all of that. In 2002, Shackleton was voted as the 11th greatest Briton in a BBC poll. In 2019, in another BBC poll, he was voted as the greatest explorer of the 20th century. Shackleton's grave in South Georgia has become a popular pilgrimage to those who venture to the island. Tradition is to have a glass of your favorite drink, preferably whiskey, around his grave. People often leave a bottle on the grave as well. So, that is it. The final episode in our longest, by far, series on the Explorers podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this epic story of explorer Ernest Shackleton. In my opinion, Shackleton is not the greatest explorer, not even close. But his actions to save himself and his crew on the Endurance Expedition are extraordinary, and that makes the guy amazing. Because of the recent time frame of Shackleton's life, we have more information than we often do about our explorers. And for that reason, we have gone more in-depth than we do in our other series. We have learned more about what makes our explorer tick, more about the details of his journey, and just more about everything. I hope you've enjoyed that deep dive into Shackleton's life. So I am going to leave you with a final quote about Shackleton, and it is one of my favorites. I think it demonstrates so much of who Shackleton was and what he represents. Let me set up the quote. In 1956, Sir Raymond Priestley, who had been on the Nimrod expedition as a geologist while addressing the British Science Association, was asked to compare the strengths of his contemporaries. He would say the following, quote, For scientific discovery, give me Scott. For speed and efficiency of travel, give me Amundsen. But when disaster strikes and all hope is gone, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. End quote. I will just leave things at that. Thanks everyone for coming along on this wonderful ride. Please take care. I will see you next time. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. <laughs> Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 